Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm with Mike Jay, freelance writer whose new book is A History of Mescaline. Mike, to start with, maybe it's a slightly impertinent question, but why should we be interested in this, you know, wacky drug that makes people see strange visions? What What is there that, that makes mescaline deserve a book? Well... It's a wacky drug that makes people see strange visions, which is very interesting in itself, I think, when you start to unpack it. I guess people will mostly be familiar with it from Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception. You know, Aldous Huxley took masculine in 1953, and, and he and his psychiatrist coined the term psychedelic after that to describe what it did. And that's usually taken to be the beginning of the psychedelic era, the start of the story. So the reason I wanted to write a book about mescaline was that it's actually pretty much the end of mescaline's story because by that time it's kind of disappearing and being replaced by LSD. But uh, it turns out that uh, you know it has a surprisingly long history and surprisingly varied. So we now have this kind of tidy pigeonhole called psychedelic that we can put things like that in. But it's very interesting, I think, to look at what mescaline was before the category of psychedelic existed. And it turns out it was of enormous importance to science, to people who wanted to know how perception and consciousness worked and uh, to understand abnormal mental states. At the same time, it's very interesting for artists and for intellectuals. So you have uh, these figures like... uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and Walter Benjamin um, taking it back in the 30s. Yeah, it's got an amazing kind of cast list, this book. It has, yeah. And that's before you Carl Sartre was pursued by imaginary crabs for much of the rest of his life after taking mescaline, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Well, that's kind of the one thing we know about it, because um, that's what Simone de Beauvoir told us. Sartre didn't write about it very much. You have to kind of, I guess there's a lot of it in La Nausée, but, uh, you know, it's not named. But then, curiously, very late in life, in the 70s, Sartre was interviewed about it and uh, said, oh, yes, I had marvellous times on mescaline. And you think, <laughs> you think really? <laughs> so you claim. But let's get, sort of go back to the beginning. I mean, what, what's to start with? What's distinctive about mescaline? I mean, there's, don't know, I mean, it's not, you separate it and you say, you know, you're not writing about the so-called pure psychedelics, these tryptamines like DMT and psilocybin and LSD. Mescaline comes from a cactus, or a couple of cactuses, isn't it? That's right. I mean, it is usually classified as a major psychedelic alongside LSD or psilocybin, which is in magic mushrooms or whatever. It's slightly different chemically. It's slightly closer to things like amphetamine and ecstasy. And its source in nature is fascinating. It's present in two types of cacti. The better known one probably the peyote cactus which grows in Mexico and a little bit of Texas but also a completely different cactus that grows in the Andes called the San Pedro. So why mescaline should appear in nature only in two cacti and in two cacti that are barely related to each other is just a, an enigma wrapped in a mystery. Yes, do we have any idea whether this or any theories as to whether this adaptive reason that these cacti would have developed this particular alkaloid yes the i mean alkaloids which are a type of chemical with a benzene ring a lot of which are psychoactive in humans pop up all over the animal well the the animal kingdom too but particularly the vegetable kingdom so we think of uh, we think of caffeine in tea or coffee or psilocybin in magic mushrooms or whatever they seem to have appeared in 
different branches of the sort of plant kingdom for different reasons and evolve for different purposes at different times. We don't really know what they do. There are quite a lot in cacti. So something like the peyote cactus, for example, has about 50 alkaloids in, of which mescaline is only one. And we can, there are small specific cases where you can say, oh, well, because it contains this alkaloid, then this plant is not predated by the things, by the insects that, you know, that, uh, that, that eat its relatives and so on. So every now and again, you can start to figure out a mechanism that implies some kind of co-evolution between plants and animals. Plants having chemicals makes them more attractive to some animals in some contexts and less attractive to others. So it's probably something in that area, but uh, beyond that, it's hard to say more specifically. And actually, what arises, it, obviously it starts, you know, the story starts in South America. Mm. I mean, why is it that South America tends to get all the drugs? I mean, think of, you know, obviously cocaine, but there's, you know, ayahuasca, there's DMT, there's psilocybin cults all started down there. What, why is that the psychedelic capital of the world? It's really curious, isn't it? I think Mexico has the most psychoactive plants. I mean, yeah. Mexico is sort of the place where South America and North America sort of flora meet. South America was isolated from the rest of the globe at the point when these cacti emerged. So it's part of that rather strange collection of South American things, which includes, you know, sort of sloths and llamas, and you know, in the animal kingdom. And in the vegetable kingdom, particularly lots of plants that contain DMT and other psychedelics. And then um, that all happened before South America met North America. But there do seem to be, in the New World generally, more psychoactive plants than in the Old World. And there are competing theories about this, why this might be so. One theory is that it's not particularly the case. It's that um, people carried on being hunters and gatherers and paying attention to the natural world in the New World long after we'd stopped here in the Old World. And there are just as many candidates here, but we've, you know, we'd, be, we'd never looked out for them or utilised them. Them. But I think um, certainly here in this part of the world, in Britain, we really have, you know, sort of opium and alcohol and sort of henbanes. You know, we have a rather a rather sort of dark narcotic and sort of small <laughs> spectrum of drugs. And uh, South America, by contrast, is full of native uh, stimulants and psychedelics and much more exciting ones. Well, this is very much a story of, of an encounter between the old world and the new world, at least in mm-hmm. part. And, you know, can you talk a little bit maybe about how... The original Mexican and Native American experience of mescaline was different and remained different for a long time from the European encounters with it. This is one of the things that really attracted me to writing a book about mescaline is that about half the story unfolds, as you say, in the Andes and in Mexico and then later in the 19th century among the Plains tribes in the United States, you know, before mescaline becomes separated and becomes a kind of chemical in its own right and we have our own Western engagement with it. So it's very interesting to balance these two stories and compare and contrast. I think it's contrast rather than compare. You know, I think telling these two stories in parallel shows you that there are very, very different ways of approaching these psychedelic plants and substances. Well, there's kind of ritual and religious aspect isn't there really at least originally in the i mean you i think the oldest thing is it chavin chavin or what chavin chavin yeah. yes the the this sort of ruin was sort of three thousand years before christ or so 
about a th- three thousand years before us, about okay. a thousand us, years a thousand before years before, before Christ, Christ yeah. we've got the very, very you know we've got uh, bas relief carvings of uh, mescaline containing cacti in temples and so on, and then once the Spanish arrive in Mexico, you start to get written reports of how how, how people use these cacti, and they are. Yes, I guess they're sort of sacramental and ceremonial and ritual, but they're also medicinal. There are contexts in which one person, a sort of shaman or a curandero, will sit down with a patient or someone who wants an answer to something and they'll take them and have a sort of one-on-one, you know, like a, you know, I guess our analogy would be a psychotherapy session. But there are other contexts in which everyone gets around together round a fire together and sing songs and uh you know, which was something that we'd call ceremonial and, and, and ritual. I think there's kind of Again, we like to put these things into pigeonholes. You know, I think it's it's harder to pigeonhole it in sort of indigenous cultures. It's uh, where there's sort of a, a plant or a cactus that can change your state of consciousness and your change of mind and the you know and the, the way that you uh, relate to the world around you. You know, that's something that has a kind of totalizing power, which you could call medical in some contexts or spiritual in others. And you, I mean, it, it becomes as you know, it starts to get put into these pigeonholes. A kind of real bone of contention, which pigeonhole it goes into, in you know the sort of late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, doesn't it? When it comes a surprise to me that you know the Native American Plains Indian tradition of using peyote is kind of a newish tradition. It's not like all the our ancestors have been doing this. It's sort of only a hundred or one hundred and fifty years old, isn't it? I mean, it it kind is of comes um, up from and Mexico. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a response to the uh, conquest of the American West by white American cultures. Firstly, because, you know, it it comes up the Texas-Mexico Railroad, you know, it was only ever traditionally used in the areas where it grew, which is just around the Rio Grande. But also, the uh, Native American peyote ceremony wasn't practised during the times when the um, tribes were free. It was only once they were in forced captivity on the reservations and after the ghost dance, which had been very troublesome for the authorities, they were no longer allowed to dance or sing in, in public on the reservation. All that was prohibited. So, yes, this um, connection to Wounded Knee, which I didn't realise. Yes, very much so. Wounded Knee was so. a mescaline riot, effectively. Yes, very much so. You know, And I think a, a lot of the... Um, sort of real driving forces behind the adoption of the peyote religion were people who were trying to pick up the pieces after the ghost dance and wounded knee and to come up with a form of Native American ceremony that could coexist with rather than challenge and confront a sort of white society around it. And there was a, I guess he called more, there's an ethnographer you describe who spends a lot of time sort of saying to the Bureau for Indian Affairs, you know, actually this is like... Near as damn it, a Christian sacrament. Yes, James Mooney, who's uh, an ethnographer from the Smithsonian. It must have been very odd being an ethnographer in that part of the world at that time because the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Federal Bureau, was working on the assumption that there wasn't going to be any Indian culture in the future. These, you know, There wouldn't be any Indians, there'd just be Americans and all the young Indians were being sent off to boarding school and they all had the same education as everybody else and the culture would, would disappear. So people like James Mooney were trying to, scrabbling around, trying to record centuries of tradition before it disappeared. It was disappearing very fast. And he was the first white man to attend a, 
a peyote ceremony. And a lot of the other ethnographers weren't very interested in it because they sort of thought, oh, this is a this is a late decadent, um, you know, sort of tradition. It's just a response to their life on uh, reservation. It's rather sordid and debased. It's a bit like their alcohol drinking. We're not going to pay attention to that. We're going to pay attention to the older stuff. So uh, James Mooney found himself in the position over over decades of uh, standing up in front of American government committees and trying to explain that uh, this wasn't just some other source of drunkenness. You know, this was the main resistance to alcoholism. You know, that the, the um, peyotists in the uh, Native American tribes were strictly alcohol-free, and so everybody who was trying to uh, trying to combat alcoholism, you know, if you became a peyotist, then you took on this kind of you know, sort of authentically American, Native American persona, um, even though the ceremony that it was based around was a, a grab bag of different things, some of which had, you know, very ancient provenance and some of which had just been, just emerged at that moment. The, the experience itself of taking peyote, I mean, one of the things that's tricky in your book, we've got a huge number of, you know, very lively accounts from people of, of their experiences and the hallucinations mm-hmm. they underwent, but it seems to vary so widely... You know, I mean, that how is there a way of sort of synthesising the data? And is that data affected? I know a lot of psychedelic theorists have said set and setting is important. Mm-hmm. That, you know, how what you expect to happen will affect what does happen, what you the circumstances in which you take something affects it. I mean, is there a way of sort of generalising about the mescaline experience as it, say, differs from psilocybin or LSD? I would say it's an enormous sort of number of different symptoms and uh, sensations and perceptions uh, that pop up and you can see that for some people they're more prominent than others compared to LSD and psilocybin it's quite an intensely physical experience which some people perceive as nausea and I think particularly you see in the history of sort of western scientists taking it you know sort of sitting at their desks with a stopwatch and a notepad you know it's very easy to start to feel I'm feeling rather sick as a result of ingesting this cactus or this chemical I think I'm just going to have to go and lie down for 12 hours so you see sort of some people kind of don't really get through that barrier Uh, beyond that some people interpret what's happening in very immediately kind of spiritual terms you know that they've been sort of elevated to a higher plane of consciousness they're in and they're in contact with spirits or with sort of the different sort of uh, energetic levels of life that they normally don't encounter other people you know particularly people with a sort of background in um in science will be a bit more clinical about picking apart the different symptoms and say ah I'm starting to get these uh, typical sort of lattice shapes in front of my eyelids when I close my eyes that's presumably because my eye brain system is being interfered with so I think in uh, you know for us westerners who don't have an actual tradition to fall into the type of experience is enormously conditioned by expectation yeah, who was it? Who I mean, there was a lot of details. This one, one of the characters said, "I fell in love with a sausage roll." Yes, that? that's um, Julian Trevelyan, who was a surrealist artist, whose um, whose work uh, who was who was recruited by a couple of um, psychiatrists at the Maudsley and was injected with mescaline and then asked to draw. And he had a marvelous time drawing. He said, just as soon as the drug started taking hold, he was absolutely in the zone. He says, perspectives and recessions just dripped off my pencil. He was sort of, like there wasn't any paper there anymore. He was just sort of working in 3D and uh, he absolutely loved it. And it's, I mean, that's a, you get that sort of 
with sort of the first person who really takes mescaline with the sort of aesthetic interests, I think, is Havelock Ellis back in the 1890s. He says a similar thing. He says, I think if this ever takes hold, then the, um, the poet of the sort of mescaline eater is going to be Wordsworth, you know, because he really captures that sense that you get from mescaline of just looking at the simplest thing and seeing it as if for the first time and sort of, you know, just seeing how how, how wonderful and, and beautiful it is, you know, even in its even in its humility, you know, some old uh, wooden chair or table surface. And well, notoriously, Aldous Huxley's trousers were the thing. Yes, you say exactly. everyone ignores the kind of quite complex literary archaeology in the, the doors of perception just remembers the bit about him looking at his trousers yes exactly that's the most memorable bit and it turns out in fact um yes they weren't the <laughs> great flat trousers he lied to us yes he? yes he did it turns out that he was actually wearing blue jeans during the experiment but then when he started writing it up his his wife said to him um Aldous, i don't think it's quite right that you should have been wearing jeans i think you should have been wearing gray flannel trousers and huxley says she told me to dress up for my readers and it was a great suggestion because i think so much of the appeal of uh, doors of perception is this sort of stuffy donish character suddenly being surprised by this extraordinary sensation i think the blue jeans don't capture that but the gray flannel trousers get them perfectly yes but not strictly true you had a go yourself what was your experience yes i've um I, I took some San Pedro in uh, in Peru many years ago, and I'm sort of quite familiar with that. During the course of the book, I also sort of took it in its other forms, chemical form and peyote and so on. I mean, I think that's just kind of essential for research, really. The analogy is... Um, Nobody's judging. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the analogy is um, travel writing, really. You know, you could write a book about Venice without actually going to Venice just by reading what other people wrote. But, you know, it's obviously going to be better if you sort of walk around the canals and sort of carry your book around with you. It was, And, and I also wanted to know how different mescaline was in different contexts you know and sort of uh, spent some time in Oklahoma with a Comanche group and uh, uh, who invited me to join one of their ceremonies which was fantastic as well and um, I learned an awful lot from that I guess particularly um, it gave me a basis for assessing all these as you say incredibly diverse and different descriptions that you get from other people you know it gives you the key to understand what they're talking about and you know to get to you know come to a sort of more nuanced assessment of what kind of experience they had and uh, you know the way that they're trying to present it to the reader. Yeah it's it's these different interpretations, you know, is at various points been seen as sort of entheogenic, that it's allowing us to access, you know, some sort of religious or mystical perspective. Then there was this idea that it was psychotomimetic, that it was a way mm-hmm. of simulating the experience of mental illness. And then that sort of passed away. And there's, I mean, there's, currently there seems to be a school of thought set out quite in some detail by, in Michael Pollan's recent book, How to Change Your Mind, that it tells us something, you know, psychedelics tell us something profound about the way the brain works. Do you subscribe to that latter view? Do you, I mean, what what do you think the sum total of all this stuff actually tells us about the brain? I think, we, you know, we can... Universe, better yet. <laughs> we can approach this experience in in all kinds of different ways. I mean, I think this is the way in which sort of the Western engagement with something like mescaline is different. You know, if we're taking a dose of mescaline, we can say to ourselves... This is a scientific experiment. I'm going to take this um, uh, this drug and see what happens to me. Or we can say, this is a sacrament. I'm going to have a spiritual experience on this. Or we can say, I'm going to take this and make some art and see what happens. You know, we have all these different sort of 
possible engagements. I think the um, one of the ones that stuck with me is probably the very earliest one that you can extract. It's from sort of the first Spanish written reports of peyote use in Mexico. They recorded a certain number of sort of hymns and poems that the Nahua people had. And their idea was that it took them to this kind of bright world where everything was, you know, this was the world where... The world where sort of peyote cactus came from was also the world where bright iridescent feathers came from and seashells and uh, they collected all these things and these were all sacred to them and part of the ceremony. And it, was, it was the idea that you kind of, this wasn't sort of some transcendental state, it didn't take you somewhere else, you know, you were still in the real world but you were sort of stepped up to a higher energetic level when everything that had been, you know, sort of solid just becomes kind of light and beauty. And then it's very interesting when you get to the sort of first accounts of peyote in the 1890s from people like Havelock Ellis and Weir Mitchell and William James. That's kind of the beginning of the electric age. And lots of people describing their, sort of their visions on mescaline say everything becomes like sort of electric, which is, seems to me to be a similar idea to the Nahua idea of the sort of bright world that you go to. And I quite like that as a framework myself because it's not trying to argue that this gives you any special privileged insights, either spiritual or scientific. It's just that uh, this allows you to see the world around you in a completely different way. And you can, you know, harness that to you know, an enormous number of different disciplines across art and science and religion. Now, do you, I mean, how much has Huxley's account of it sort of framed the way people experience the drug? Subsequently, I mean, this this very strong idea he ha- had, which seems to pervade of uh, the mind as a c- cerebral reducing valve, the idea that what it's doing is it's giving you access to more. You know, yes. that the normal brain cannot bear very much reality, and that therefore we're we're trained to ignore it. And yes. that psychedelics can you know sort of basically bust that open and force us to take in much much more. Yes, that's right. I mean, Huxley. The funny thing about Huxley's experience is that it wasn't at all what he was expecting, but everything that he wrote about it was stuff that he'd written before he took it, you know, so uh, you have to sort of square those two. He attributes so he lied that... about the trousers and he <laughs> knew in advance what he was going to find. He, he knew in advance it was going to be a cerebral reducing valve that was, you know, that, that was going to sort of allow his brain to be flooded. He, he kind of associates that with the philosophy of Henri Bergson. But it's interesting, it goes way, way, way back to the very, very first what you could call psychedelic experiments, which was Humphrey Davy and Samuel Coleridge and uh, Robert Southey and people taking nitrous oxide in Bristol in um, 1799. And one of the group of people who takes that is Peter Mark Roger, uh, Dr. Roger, Roger's thesaurus fame as a young man. And he inhales a balloon of nitrous oxide and says, it's as if, you know, my thoughts were sort of a river that normally rolls along sort of in its banks, but they just sort of burst out and flooded, you know, out of their usual equable course, you know. So this is a, a metaphor that goes way back. And it's a metaphor that now people like David Nutt, who are sort of, you know, looking at um, brain imaging scans on psychedelics see that people on psychedelics are making connections between parts of their brain that aren't normally connected so you know now this idea of the reducing valve is kind of entering neuroscience but still I think on that level as a metaphor so the met- but, but the metaphor was sort of holding good the metaphor has been is consistent yeah it's it's a good one it's one of the one thing I know that there's a sort of folklore at least associated with DMT mm-hmm. that people hallucinate in common you know lots and lots of people who take dmt see these mechanical elves is there anything similar that unites mescaline i mean i've always been fascinated by where these machine elves come from if 
Well, Vichy and Elle sort of come from Terence McKenna, and once he kind of conceptualises them and describes them, you know, very sort of in his captivating way as machine elves, then everybody sees them, and uh, you know, then people who take DMT say to each other, "Oh, but have you seen the machine elves?" One of the things that's interesting. So it's kind of iatrogenic. That I think I think it is, and you have the same in, for example, with ayahuasca in the Amazon. You know, in the sort of Santo Daime Church, there are things that you're supposed to see, like the Queen of the Forest, and there are, in a sense, once you have a tradition and people are comparing their experiences then you start to get this idea that if you see x you've had the proper experience and if not you don't and so that was one of the nice things about mescaline is that its history unfolds before there's any consensus of that kind so you get an enormously sort of varied range of different different descriptions and i've just curated a exhibition which is on at the Museum of the Mind down at Bethlehem Hospital of art produced under mescaline in the 1930s and it's very interesting to look at that some of it is very similar to what we now th- we'd, we'd now look at that and go wow that's really psychedelic some of it not so much and I think generally also the um Western engagement with psychedelia from the very, very beginning, you can see that people fixate on sort of the visual hallucinations. You know, I think anybody who's taken psychedelics is aware there's an awful lot more to it than that. But that's the way the sort of the the science fixated, and that's the language that people talk about it to the point that the word psychedelic now, you know, means kind of bright colours and ghastly, sort of jangly op art. Um, Now, as you say, you know, um, Huxley and at least one other of the major mescaline experimenters of the you know 20th century were visually impaired yes uh, Sartre as well Sartre was yes there, yeah. yes I think that's kind of curious and interesting and so Huxley said he was expecting to see all these wonderful kind of um, jeweled geometric patterns and be transported by that but as he said by his own account he was a very poor visualizer and he didn't see any of that he just saw the real world but in a way that he'd never seen it before yeah no not everybody had such a good time. I mean, there's a suggestion that Antonin Artaud, if not sent off his rocker by his use of mescaline, certainly didn't help. You know, he didn't get any saner afterwards. And you've got um, mm-hmm. Louisa Dodge had a... Mm-hmm. Is he called Louisa Dodge? One of the um, characters who attended... Mabel Dodge Lou. Mabel Dodge Lou, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. Whose who's cousin Genevieve, again, yes. was given a nervous breakdown by mescaline. Mm-hmm. You know, Colin Wilson resisted it. Yes, kind of, in his of course. Dogged, Colin Wilson is. <laughs> um, but do you think this is a psychiatrically dangerous drug? I mean, do you think it should be prohibited? Well, those are two different questions for me. I mean, there's an argument that uh, the more dangerous it is, uh, the more important it would be to have it kind of legally controlled and regulated. But yeah, I think there are abundant examples of people having terrible times on masculine certainly and I think you know particularly if you don't know what you're expecting and the first thing that you start to feel is sort of nausea and butterflies in your stomach and sort of cold in your extremities the natural thing to um to think is you know I've been poisoned and I'm going to have a terrible time and you know I think that that happens to quite a lot of people there's no evidence that I mean it, it physiologically it's quite benign, you know. There's no evidence that people are physiologically harmed by it, but it's it's an extremely you can't, you can't overdose. No, and I mean, beyond a certain dose, the physical symptoms get very unpleasant, and you and you wouldn't want to. But twelve hours later, you'll be okay again. I think one of the interesting things that appeared because it's actually. People talk about psychedelic therapy as if it all started in the 1950s or 60s. Of course, with mescaline, it goes back well over 100 years. And what people established quite early on in um, 
giving mescaline to patients was that, as with everybody else, you know, the response is very, very unpredictable. Some people have a great time. Some people have a terrible time. Some people don't sort of feel very much. But the more mentally unwell people are, the less sort of uh, mentally healthy they are, the more likely they are to have a really bad experience, as you'd expect if you're um, sort of uh, trying to deal with psychotic disorder and you're sort of being confined in hospital. It's not a great set and setting to have a really good time. <laughs> so proceed with caution, listeners. Uh, Mike J, thank you very much for your time. Oh, pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for our next episode.